Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter audio version. I am your reader, Dr. Christopher Magrita, and this is volume 11, issue number 26. And we're going to focus this week on ticks, baby food, heavy metals, and then part three of the elimination redo. We're going to look a little bit closer into a few of these topics. But before we do that, let me read the disclaimer. Please note that the information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. I really appreciate you listening. Living healthy lives is very predicated on having healthy ecosystems. And as we're going to look at this week with ticks, the natural ecosystem for animals in general has been altered pretty significantly over the past 40 or 50 years. And that seems to be one of the major reasons we're seeing more problems with pathogens, specifically in this case, ticks. Ticks, viruses, and bacteria are all finding their ways to us as we change the natural world around us. And this is something we're going to have to be cognizant of over the next few decades of our existence. So let's go on to it. Ticks. We're seeing more of them. And tick exposure, potential infections, and many other tick-related phenomena are starting to show up in the clinic as people are heading out to the mountains and beaches for vacation and regular life again. Every spring and summer, many children present to our clinic with tick bites and other insect issues. While most bites are benign, some are not. Being aware of these realities and risks of tick exposure will help us make really good decisions regarding our medical care needs. Let's look at the tick. Ticks are eight-legged little creatures that live primarily on animals in the woods and then grab onto us as we walk by when we contact a plant or an animal that they were waiting on or what is otherwise known as questing as they look for a sucker, us, to come by and suck on. Take our blood for that matter. Ticks can migrate via birds that can carry them miles away from their previous location. They also travel with all kinds of animals from location to location, but seem to be on mice deer, livestock, and birds predominantly. Ticks feed only on blood and utilize special mouth adaptations to cut the skin and suck out the blood. They keep our blood from clotting by releasing anticoagulants into the blood as soon as they suck it out. While the amount of blood that a given tick removes from us is minimal to almost undetectable, they have a nasty habit of leaving behind dangerous pathogenic microbes in our bloodstream. Of note, the most troublesome tick-borne illness uh, is caused by a bacteria called rickettsia, which leaves us with a problem called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. There's also another bacteria called Borrelia, which can leave us with Lyme disease. There are others as well. Tularemia, babesiosis, tick paralysis, or lichiosis are a few of the many tick-related problems that occur in the United States every year. You can read about all of them at www.cdc.gov, otherwise cdc.gov, and you can know more about each corresponding tick to each corresponding illness. This time, though, we're going to focus mostly on three problems. Let's look at Lyme disease, right? Lyme disease is firmly now in the South. I grew up in the hotbed of Lyme disease in the Hudson Valley of New York, Dutchess County, where they see more Lyme cases pretty much than anywhere else in the world. 
It appears that mouse overpopulation is one of the big reasons of making things worse. The overpopulation is a result of shrinking predator populations as forest space is reduced in urban and suburban areas. Mice are highly efficient transmitters of Lyme disease and are responsible for infecting the majority of ticks carrying Lyme in the Northeast. It's said that a mouse can carry up to 100 ticks covering its ears and its face at a time. It's a bit scary, actually. Let's look at the three major ones in detail. I'm going to start actually with Lyme disease. Lyme disease is not deadly in the early stages. It is a tick-borne illness spread by the black-legged or deer tick that presents with a bullseye rash you can see online at Google Images called erythema migrans within the first few weeks of a bite. The symptoms can progress over subsequent months with inflammation that involves the joints, heart, neurologic system. It's a serious disease with significant morbidity if not treated with antibiotics. Read up on this illness further to know when to seek medical attention. Using antibiotics for the acute treatment is therapeutic and preventative of Lyme-induced chronic symptoms, which can be a real problem. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, on the other hand, otherwise known as RMSF, is a disease that is spread by the dog or wood tick and is notorious for being a bad player. If left untreated without antibiotics, it will leave you potentially with a seriously life-threatening illness. It can be deadly in short order, and RMSF presents with fever, headache, body aches, and maybe even nausea and vomiting. There is a very seminal rash that appears on the wrists and palms about day four through seven, but as early as day two. The rash is a purplish spotted little rash that shows up on those wrists, palms, ankles, and soles. The illness mimics many other viral illnesses in the first few days, making diagnosis very tricky. In general, it's recommended to start antibiotics in the first few days when the suspicion changes from a virus to a possible tick-borne illness like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. I would take this bad boy seriously. The third one on our list is Alpha-Gal. Alpha-Gal is a tick-induced allergy to red meat, beef, and pork that is increasing in since the United States. Alpha-Gal is caused by the Lone Star Tick and the Black Leg Tick, found often in the southeastern United States. They are the known vectors of transmission of a sugar molecule called alpha-gal or galactose alpha-1,3-galactose, which induces an immune reaction in the susceptible individuals leading to an allergy. This food allergy reaction can occur at any age and is an IgE, the type of antibody, mediated delayed hypersensitivity reaction hours after the exposure to the sugar oligosaccharide epitope alpha-gal. What that fancy word means, the sugar, oligosaccharide, meaning small sugar molecule, the protein epitope, which is what our body reacts to, is alpha-gal. This was shown by a study by Crispell et al. in 2019. The immunologic reaction can be mild as just hives, or it can be as severe as anaphylaxis requiring an epinephrine injection to keep you alive. Organ meats Beef, lamb, pork, dairy, gelatins can cause this reaction upon ingestion. To make things worse, alpha-gal sufferers can react to certain drugs and vaccines because of animal-based gelatin additives. This was shown by Stone et al. in 2019. Avoidance of meats and gelatins is the treatment of choice. And really, at this point, really the only treatment once you are converted from normal to allergic to alpha-gal. Prevention is the key to avoiding all exposure to these creatures, right? Because if you don't get exposed to the tick and have time with the tick sucking on your blood, you will not be transmitted a pathogen that causes problems to you, which is the best way to go. So you can avoid antibiotics and avoid all the problems. Let's look at some tried and true methods for keeping your family free of tick-borne disease. Here they are. 
Number one, perform tick checks on your children daily after outdoor play. Check behind the ears, nape of the neck, groin, armpit, and between the toes. Ticks in general need to be attached for roughly 24 to 36 hours to transmit the spirochete pathogen that causes Lyme disease, RMSF, and other disorders. Remove the, chick, remove the tick gently with tweezers by pulling and not squeezing. There's a link in the newsletter that you can click on to find a nice little image video of how to do this safely. Because if you squeeze too much, you can actually push the innards of the tick into your bloodstream, causing problems. Number two, tick bites can leave an itchy bump. Kids will often scratch them open and leave a place for infection to occur. We're seeing a lot of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which is a nasty bacteria that causes abscesses from these bites that are later picked at and scratched. The bacteria that causes these abscesses, the MRSA, is often found in the nares or the nose of children and adults, and then their fingers hold it underneath the nails if they pick their nose or other uh, sources of exposure. Prevent this from happening by using insect repellents and long clothing when you're outside. Just another reason to avoid the ticks in the first place, right? Number three, treat all domesticated animals for ticks if they have them. Prevent tick issues by having your animals take flea and tick medicine, which appears to be very, very safe. Number four, use topical products with DEET or oil of eucalyptus lemon, 30% ratio, to prevent tick bites. Not for kids under three years of age, though. If you want to see a site that talks a lot about this, go to the Environmental Working Group, www.ewg.org's website. There's a link in the newsletter for details on insect repellents in specific. It is an excellent source of information for safe chemical use. Number five, apply all repellents by hand to avoid inhalation by yourself or your child. Same with sunscreens. All the aerosolized chemicals in my mind are not good because they're not intended to be inhaled and lungs are not a good place to put chemicals in general. So I think applying anything that is a topical should be applied by hand with gloves if necessary. But in general, if you're applying it onto your skin, you better be able to use your hands. That means it's safe enough to do. Number six, shower after outdoor activities. That's a simple one. That just helps you get the repellent off, but also helps you uh, feel around on your body while you're cleaning to feel if you find any ticks attached to your skin. Number seven, I like creams like calendula, aloe vera, and cortisone for itching. Also, rubbing a moist tea bag on bites can also help with itching and swelling as tannins act like an astringent. Number eight, keep mice and deer away from your living area is a great idea just to keep the ticks away from where you live. Having an outdoor cat, using fences to keep deer out, and treating your domesticated animals for tick prevention are solid choices for your family's health. Nine, treat your hiking clothing with 5.5, excuse me, 0.5% permethrin, which is a chemical that is very effective at keeping ticks away. And uh, that's a very effective prevention strategy if you're going to be out in the woods for a prolonged period of time. And lastly, contact your provider if you think you have a tick-related illness, and let's stay tick-free, all of us. Section two, the FDA is limiting the volume of heavy metals allowed in baby foods. It is sort of ridiculous that I even have to write that, right? It's crazy to think that the FDA would be doing this this late in the game and this hasn't been the norm up until now. But reality is it is. We're finding out that for a while now, mercury and arsenic have been showing up on unacceptable levels in baby foods. And we're also finally seeing a movement on the regulatory front to stop this problem. 
These metals have the ability to cause reactive oxygen species development in our bodies that cause damage to cells wherever they're found. Heavy metals tend to damage the cells in the location that they bioaccumulate. For the brain, that is mercury and arsenic's home of choice. Thus, infants that accumulate these metals in the brain tissue will suffer cellular damage and potentially developmental damage, and all of these things are not good. The FDA is now recalling infant rice cereal to limit the damage that is posed through these foods via arsenic bioaccumulation. While this is useful, it is late and begs the question of why we're eating rice cereal to begin with in infants. In our clinic, we recommend vegetables and fruits at six months of age and not grain-based carbohydrates that are not particularly healthy in the first place in mass quantity. Mass-produced foods will always run the risk of contamination and corporate systems are not aligned with safety-first protocols to limit a newborn's risk. So therefore, I have a couple solutions. Number one, buy organic vegetables and fruits and make your own baby food, end of story. You have control that way, you know what you're getting and you know what you're seeing. The trust factor is lost after years of continued issues with food corporations not caring so much about the health aspects of their product so much as their profit. This change should have been a top priority for companies long ago and not based on illegal or governmental policy. Your infant's going, growing brain needs to not be exposed to any toxins. Number two, Limit the volume of heavy metal exposed foods in children. Rice, apples, and byproducts made from them are high-risk foods these days based on the soil that they are grown in. If you are gluten-free, you have to reduce your consumption of refined carbohydrates in general because they are often filled with rice flour and rice syrup. That's another big issue. Section 3. Repires article elimination. For the past few episodes, we've done elimination via stool and elimination via sweat. And now we're going to look at exhalation, expectorating, urinating, and vomiting. Although defecating and sweating are critical functions for the human body, these other elimination methods are also important in their own ways. The four elimination pathways are also involved in removing toxins, heat, and excess water from the human body. Exhaling is basically a path for removing carbon dioxide after a successful breath. The vast majority of exhaled air is CO2. There are a few other volatile organic compounds like ethanol and methanol that are released, making the lungs and blood more clean. Effective exhalation controls the autonomic nervous system, inducing a relaxed posture. The effect of breathing in a pattern of one beat of inhalation to every two beats of exhalation is to induce a relaxed parasympathetic tone of the autonomic nervous system, and this is good for us. This is the, op this is the opposite state to the hyper-alert stress state. If you suffer from supraventricular tachycardia, as I do, a first, excuse me, a fast heart rhythm, this breathing pattern is magical at reducing your symptoms. Expectorating is the process of relieving the lungs, throat, or mouth of saliva and mucus that has trapped chemicals and pathogens. This is a critical process for clearing pathogens from the body that have sequestered during the fight against an infection in the respiratory pathway. When you inhale toxins from the environment, they get trapped in the respiratory tract's mucus layer, allowing you to clear them as well by, by spitting out the mucus. Completely stopping this process with medicines is not a great idea, as it encourages the body to keep unwanted pathogens and chemicals in the system. When you have increased mucus development, clear it out by spitting, out, spitting it out after a cough. Urinating is a process by which the body removes excess water, excess minerals, and clears chemicals after the kidneys have completed the blood filtration process. This is critical for maintaining normal blood volume and cleanliness. The kidneys are filtering the blood clearly every day of unwanted chemicals and balancing common electrolytes like salt. 
The most important aspect to remember for us is to maintain adequate hydration to keep flushing the kidneys in the bloodstream. Urine color is a good barometer into hydration. Clear to light yellow urine is a good sign that you are drinking adequate amounts of water. In contrast, when your child's urine is yellow, this is the time to have them drink a little bit more water. Caveat to this principle is when you consume vitamin B12 or riboflavin, which turns your urine bright yellow. Vomiting is the final process for removing toxins and pathogens from the stomach before the material reaches the absorbing intestines. This is a straightforward and voluntary natural response that the body employs when it senses a pathogen or toxin in the stomach. It is self-limited. It is very safe, although very uncomfortable. If vomiting persists or follows an unusual pattern, like only in the morning or following meals, seek out medical advice as these are likely linked to a more significant problem. During the vomiting period and immediately following it, rehydrating with water or an oral hydration solution is very important. Again, your urine color is one of the ways to check for your balance. All right, folks, that completes the elimination tour. Allow your body allow your body proper elimination and you will be effectively clearing unwanted toxins that inevitably find their way into your body and potentially damaging cellular function. Get out, sweat, drink lots of water, have a bowel movement daily by eating lots of fiber, cough and spit, and breathe your way to health. I say let's release those evil humors. For the recipe of the week, you can look at the website for NicoleMargrita.com and under recipes, look up sweet potato pancakes for toddlers. These things are pretty darn good. Young children need healthy fat to grow well. In fact, babies and young toddlers need almost half of their calories from fat, which is critical for brain growth and development. And even older children still need about a third of their calories from healthy fat sources. These sweet potato pancakes are packed with antioxidants and essential nutrients that will supercharge your kid's health. On-the-go parents or babies and toddlers often reach for processed, refined, grain snack foods like teething crackers, biscuits, cookies, and cereal like Cheerios. Unfortunately, these foods offer very little nourishment, and in addition to being very addictive, they are also inflammatory. A great alternative are whole foods that nourish. Let's look at sweet potato pancakes. You can serve them as a meal or carry them in a to-go container as a great pinch-or-grasp snack food later on. Little kids love them hot and cold. You can find the recipe at NicoleMagrita.com again under the recipe section. Alrighty, folks, this concludes this week's reading of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, Volume 11, letter number 26. I hope you enjoyed it. There's a lot of stuff to unpack in there over time, so really pay attention to those ticks because this summer it could be a big mess. I hope you all are going to have a fabulous week. Really appreciate you listening, and you know what? Keep getting those hugs from those kids. Have a great day.